0: Several years ago, that my family, well, some of my family, those that were living at our home at that point, vacationed out in Arizona, and we uh, traveled out there and spent uh, spent some time climbing around the red rocks and so forth. And there was a uh, friend of mine who was part of our church who, who when he found out we were going to Arizona, he said, "Okay, you've got to go to the Grand Canyon. You've got to see the Grand Canyon." I'm like, "Well, you know, I've seen holes before." Not that big of a deal, was it? He said no, no. I'm telling you, you gotta go. I said all right, we'll do it. We'll take the trek, you know, from Phoenix up to up to the southern rim of the Grand Canyon. And he said, now this is what I want you to do. And now this guy had an amazing memory of, of a lot of details um, about the Grand Canyon. He told he told me exactly where to go there at the visitor center. He told me the spot to take my whole family to. And as he described it, I was it was very easy to find the spot. We were some distance away from the rim uh, from, the, from the Grand Canyon. He said, Now when you get there, he said, I want you all four to stand there, which is my wife and I and our two younger children. He said, I want you to take hands, okay, and look straight at the ground and just start walking forward. All four of you. Just walk forward towards the Grand Canyon. Now, understand that at the edge of the canyon, all right, there's a guardrail. So we're not gonna go, you know, creaming into the hole. That's not we're walking forward, and, you know, I'm, I'm noticing, you know, the pavement, and I see the grass up here. It really hasn't been mowed in a while. I don't know what their problem is, you know. It's like, take care of the place, you know. And I see my son. It's like, yeah, he's dragging behind. It's like, come on, son, you know, and dragging your feet, kicking rocks. And, you know, the place is kind of, honestly, it was a little bit dirty. It was a little frustrating. But, but I'm walking forward, you know, we get to the guardrail really kept up it was kind of the paint was chipped and it needed some it needed really to be addressed but we get to the edge of the guardrail and just as my friend told me he said now when you get there somebody count three and then look up so we're all looking down and I can see my dirty shoes and my son who's finally now up here and you know we're all here and you know and pulling on hands and so forth and somebody said one two three and just as we were just as we were told we all looked up at that moment, and I'm telling you, if you've never seen the Grand Canyon, I hope that someday you'll get to see it. It absolutely took my breath away. It was much more than a big hole. It was it was overwhelming to see this huge, vast. I mean. You, you cannot describe, i would seen pictures, i would seen videos just like the rest of you. But it was overwhelming to see the, the wonder of this heart of God's creation. Now I want to start with that today because today what I hope will happen is that we will, on this day, lift up our eyes and get our eyes off of the world around us. That we will stop focusing on all the things that the media and our friends and our co-workers and our family are trying to get us all hyped up about. And we'll lift up our chins and see the wonder of who God is. My friend gave me great advice. And on the way there, I revealed the human nature. You know, I got so fixated on the small little pebbles that were there underneath my feet. That I didn't even, couldn't even comprehend the greatness of what was there before me. And that's what we need today. That's exactly where we need to go today. The psalmist says in Psalm 121, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? It's not an elected official. Sorry to tell you. They're never going to come through and bring the help that you and I need. Today, my hope again is that God will reach out. He doesn't have a hand, but metaphorically take his hand and lift our chins up. That we will see him high and lifted up. You know, last week we started into a series and we're asking this question. What in the world is God doing? What is God doing? And we started last week with, what is God doing in our government? And we looked at Romans 13, where we're called to be in subjection to those who have authority over us. And we saw what that means, that they are the deacon of God. The authorities, the government leaders that are that are really ruling over us are there as servants of God to accomplish his will. Wittingly or unwittingly. They may not even know that they're accomplishing God's will, but they are. We saw that in Romans chapter 13, and we saw that God instituted government. And it was a challenge that even when things don't look like there's a plan, we know that there is. And that God is accomplishing his sovereign will through human authorities. Well, today we're going to continue this study of of what in the world is God doing. We're going to make it broader than government, but it certainly will include that. And we're going to find it again in the book of Romans. So pull out your Bible and go to Romans chapter 11. We're going to look at the very last set of verses of Romans chapter 11. There, it's a powerful passage of Scripture. And as you turn there, I'll just say a couple of things about it just as you read the Romans maybe in this coming week. If you're not familiar with the book of Romans, um, really it's, it's a great argument for our redemption in Christ, the righteousness that we have. Through Christ, by faith alone, God has declared us righteous. And it, an interesting thing happens as you read through the book of Romans. Several times, three or four times, it almost feels like the book is coming to an end. And this passage in Romans 11 feels like it could have been the end of Romans. And in chapters 9, 10, 11, Paul, the Spirit of God is, has, has moved Paul to make an argument. And it comes to a conclusion here at the end of chapter 11 and really what it is is i I would i would identify this as worship in real time that's what this is this is worshiping god in real time not just on sunday morning for an hour at church okay but the real truth of what worship is worship isn't just singing songs it may include that but worship is giving god the worth that he deserves and that he demands and this passage at the, of, at the end of Romans chapter 11 is the spirit of God's really ministry to Paul. Lifting up Paul's eyes that he might experience real worship. I want us to be reminded today. Today it's all about remembering some truth. We're reminded about the plight of orphans and those that are struggling in our, in our world today. Today I want us to be reminded of the character of God. And I want us to understand that worship comforts us. Worship is a comfort to us over the plan of God. Let me read 33 to 36 of Romans chapter 11. Follow along with me. Paul writes this. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. I believe that the Spirit of God inspired Paul to write these words as a comfort to his soul. And they then, they then can comfort our soul as well. You say, well, why do you think that? Well, as I study through the book of Romans, I find a section there in chapters 9, 10, and 11. And this is what Paul is wrestling through. And he records as the Spirit inspired him to write down his thoughts and, and how God led him. And this is what he's wrestling through. This is what Paul was wrestling through. The question is this, has God abandoned his people? God raised up the Jewish people, and Paul was a Jewish man. And God raised them up and gave them a special mission of bringing the word of God to the world and bringing the Messiah of God to the world. This is what the Jewish people were called to do, to usher in the word and to usher in the Savior. But as we've been studying in Matthew chapter 12, the religious leaders, the authorities of that day, rejected Jesus. They rejected him. And Paul, in this section of Romans, is laboring over that. As a matter of fact, at the start of it in chapter 9, verses 1, 2, and 3, and so forth, you'll see there Paul says, I would rather be accursed to hell than to see my Jewish brethren not come to jesus he's burdened for these people but he sees that they are rejecting jesus and he's wondering has god abandoned them and god gives him and gives us these four verses to remind us that god has not abandoned us listen this doesn't just happen this kind of question doesn't just happen over nations over, over large ethnos of people, over, over countries and governments. It, it happens in our everyday life where you wonder, has God abandoned me? Has he forgotten me? Has God gone to sleep and, and just is unaware of my struggles? If you ever have felt that way, and I know that you have, this passage is a comfort to us. Because it reminds us of the character of God. And I want us to understand this truth before we dive into it. Worship. Again, it's more than singing. Worship is a matter of trusting and obeying. Hear this. It's a matter of trusting and obeying. Oh, we understand what obedience is. And Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Obedience is when we do what God expects, and we are called to obey him as an act of worship. But worship also includes trusting. Now hear this. Trusting is worshiping God even when he doesn't do what we expected. Let that sink into your soul. Where obedience is doing what God expects of us, trusting is worshiping him even when he doesn't do what we expected. It's a call to lift our eyes above the pebbles on the pavement and see the character of God. Now what what Paul is overwhelmed with, I just want to just hit this just to again highlight these truths look at verse number 32 we want to we want to lead up to this passage and understand the full weight of what paul was writing what the spirit of god has led him to write verse number 32 paul writes this for god has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all the first thing that that paul is going to trust even when god isn't doing what he expects him to do god is going to trust the mercy of god God's mercy for sinners, we, we, are gonna, we, need to, we need to recognize that today and trust that to be true even we, when God is not do what we expected him to do. Look back at verse number 25. Here's another truth that Paul is building upon. He says, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. See, here's this issue that Paul was wrestling over. Paul was wrestling over Israel. And how they rejected Jesus. You may not be wrestling over that issue today. But I assure you, you're wrestling over something. So what is the trust that you have, even when God doesn't do what you expected? Look what Paul says. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. What does this mean? Paul is trusting in God's grace for the world. He understands that God's grace is not just for one group of people. It's not just for one ethnos. It's not just for one race. It's not just for one gender. No. God's grace is for everyone. And that's part of his plan that he's working out that we talked about last week. He wants to reach people. That's his plan. To bring glory to himself. By reaching and seeing people come to know him. And then last, you're going to go back a couple pages, but but this is really important for us to see. Chapter 9, verse number 30. Look what it says here, 930. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith. Another truth that Paul is going to trust even when God doesn't do the things he was expecting him to do, is that God's righteousness is by faith. So I pose this question, going back to Romans eleven thirty-three: 33. How can we trust that the events of this world are pointing us to those truths? That's what Romans 11 is going to show us. The first point I want to make today is that God's plan is being accomplished. Relax. Relax. God's plan is being accomplished. Look at verse number 33. Paul writes, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable his ways. Paul starts here in this sort of you know last sort of conclusion of this section of Romans, you might call it a benediction if you're comfortable with that word. In verse number 33 he points us to three truths about God. He's, he's now looking at the doctrine of God, theology. And he identifies three things that I want to highlight, but they're all really pointing to one reality and that is that God is sovereign. that God is sovereign. This means he's ruling over all things. All creatures are accountable to him. All creatures do glorify God. All creatures do. All people do. All events do glorify God. Either wittingly or unwittingly. Some are glorifying God and don't even know that they're glorifying God. But all things are to the glory of God because he is sovereign. We don't don't understand sovereign. It's not a concept in our American mindset that we can grasp. I mean, after all, we elect or unelect our leaders every two or four years. So the concept of a sovereign is is not even in our minds. God is under no obligation. Now listen to this, as sovereign, God is under no obligation to oblige, to explain, to repay, or to be in submission to our thoughts. He rules above us. No one has given God anything. You cannot give to God. Because all things are His. This is what it means to be a sovereign. He is the first cause, the ongoing cause, and he will be the continued cause of all things into all eternity. His ways are beyond our discovery. They're beyond our understanding. His ways are beyond our even our ability to think. This is our sovereign God. Paul highlights three aspects of his sovereignty. They come under the categories, they come under the words that is of, of riches, wisdom, and knowledge. Riches. Now, this is not that Daffy Duck character, Scrooge McDuck, diving around in you know piles of gold coins. That's not what this is. This is not God has you know piles of cash that he's just throwing out. That's not what this word "riches" means. The word here "riches" means abundance. It means overflowing. And I would suggest to you what this is. This is God's all-powerful nature. That he is omnipotent. That he has an abundance of ability to do whatever it is he wants to do. This is what God can do. God's plan cannot be thwarted by any man or any government or any plan or any vote or at all. God is ruling over all things. And that's why he can accomplish his will through people or institutions that are opposed to him. Because of his riches. He's self-sufficient. No need from anyone or anything. Wrestle with the character and the nature of our God. Next, let's go down to knowledge. Let's skip wisdom for now. Knowledge, in verse number 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. By the way, this word depth would, would bring to mind the idea of the ocean depth. Of, of, of the depths of the Pacific Ocean. that we can't, we can't even get that deep. As, as humans, and all of our technology, we can't even get there. That's, that's this idea of depth here. So, it's an unlimited power, and it's an unlimited knowledge. He is all-knowing. He has insight in the very essence of all things, all people, all ideas. This is our God. There is nothing that can be known that is not known by Him see, each of, these, each of these attributes of God that, that the Spirit of God wants Paul to emphasize, we can understand these at some level. See, you can have some power in your life today. As, as a creature, you can have power. As a creature, you can have knowledge. And as a creature, you can have the third we haven't mentioned yet, wisdom. But we are limited. What Paul wants us to understand, what the Spirit of God wants us to understand, is that God is unlimited in his knowledge, unlimited in his power, and unlimited in, His third thing, his wisdom. Let's talk about his wisdom for a moment. Wisdom is this. It's the ability to select the best means for the attainment of the highest goal. That's what it is. So you might be wise in the area of finances, or you might be wise in the area of business, or banking, or or the like, or soccer, or whatever, and you have some wisdom there. You you know maybe the play to call on a football field, or or you know where to invest your money, or or you might might have some ideas, some, some wisdom about these things, but your wisdom is limited. God's wisdom is unlimited. He knows the very best plan to accomplish his will. He has the knowledge, unlimited knowledge, to know the ins and outs, the very essence of all people, all things, all activities. And he has the power to pull the lever to accomplish what he wants. That's who our God is. Let that be a comfort to you today. He is the one who is reigning, and he is the one who calls you son or daughter. His knowledge can't be thwarted. His wisdom can't be thwarted. His power can't be thwarted by any vote, by any elected leader, by any effort to to misalign the ballots or, or the like. None of this can stand in the way of God. This is who he is. See, God's plan is being accomplished. And notice what it says here. How unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable his ways. So, again, see, we can have some power, we can have some wisdom, we can have some knowledge we can have a limited amount of those made in the in the image of God he allows us to understand a certain element of each of those three things but it's limited it's limited and so his judgments the bible says are unsearchable you know what that means you can't grasp them you're not going to get it it's not that you don't understand what god is doing yet No. You cannot understand what God is doing. You can't. Quit trying. Do yourself and all of your loved ones a favor and stop trying to figure it out. His ways are inscrutable. Now that's a word I bet you you probably haven't used in the last decade, right? Let me tell you what it means. A couple years ago, my, my youngest son and I, we went um, hiking in, in the Dolly Sods Wilderness Region of West Virginia. If you've never been there, um, it's 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 an amazing experience. We went there for several days on a backpacking trip. And, you know, of course, the way that all the events of my life seemed to go, um, we got lost. Um, day three, we're low on water. We're exhausted. My feet were just killing me. I thought my 13-year-old son was going to, have to carry me out, which he could have. And I didn't know what we were going to do because we got lost. We're going along the trail, Black Knob Trail, if you know it. And we're, we're, we're walking along, and all of a sudden, it's like the trail just disappears. It's gone. We went a little further, and we turn around, and it's not there either. The trail is gone. We are in the middle of the woods. It's just it's 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 unlike anything you've ever been in before and we have no trail. Our path was inscrutable. That's what that phrase refers to. It's a trail in the wilderness that you lose. You know, every single television show, you know, you always have this person, this tracker, and they're out in the woods, or out in the forest, and I can track them. And they track somebody, you know, and it's like, really, where do these tracking skills come from? I've spent a lot of time in the woods, and I don't know how to track somebody. But you always have somebody who can do it, right? Until what? Rain. Oh, no, now their trail is gone. Well, that's an inscrutable path. Washed away. You can't see it. So do yourself and all your loved ones a favor. And stop trying to figure out God. Because worship is trusting God even when he doesn't do what you expected. I mean, after all, in all of your limited knowledge, why, you know what should have happened here. In your vast, small wisdom, you knew what was best. In the power that you have, oh, how great and powerful you are with your one vote. You thought, certainly, this is what God's plan is. Do yourself and all your loved ones a huge favor and believe God's word. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. God's plan is being accomplished. Secondly, verse number 34 is this, that God's plan is beyond us. It very much relates to the, to the first point. God's plan is beyond us. Look at verse number 34. For who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor? This is a quote from Isaiah chapter 40, verse number 13. Listen, you should spend some time in Isaiah 40. You really should. It's a tremendous passage of scripture. And it will do your heart good to, to meditate upon the truths of Isaiah 40. And Paul brings one up from memory here. Verse number 35 is a quote from Job, I believe, chapter 41. He says this, for who has given a gift to him, who has given a gift to God, that is, that he might be repaid? So listen to these two verses again. For who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Let me bring some truths to bear about God and his plan. God is not seeking ideas, God is not seeking advice, and God is not seeking your help. Come to grips with that. Come to grips with that today as a creature, as a follower of God. Allow your worship to be trusting him even when he doesn't do what you expected. God is not seeking ideas from you. He's not saying, oh, man, Lowell, please tell me what to do. I wasn't counting on this. Let me know what I should do. He's not pulling you up like a father or a great uncle or something to give him advice. What do you think I should do about this? I mean, do you know what they believe about that? What do you think I should do, Lowell? He's not seeking our advice, and he doesn't even want your help. God doesn't need your help. How does that feel? How does that feel to know that God doesn't need your ideas, your advice, or your help? Do yourself a favor and accept the reality of who you are and who God is. My, your wife will thank you. And so will your kids. And so will your co-workers. Trust God. Even when he doesn't do what you expected him to do. And let me be very clear about something. This message that I'm sharing with you is as old as this book right here. It's 2,000 years old. And my little outline, which doesn't really mean much, was written long before, like nine days before, anything about the election results. I'm not talking about who got elected president or not this week. I'm talking much broader than that. That's a pebble on the ground. Lift up your eyes. Let me tell you a story about Mushi the dog. So for 14 years, I had, my family had a Shih Tzu, Bichon Mix. They are the best dogs in the world. They call them teddy bear dogs, okay? And they're awesome. You should get one. And if you do, call me. I'd like to come pet it and then leave your house. Um, and we would somewhat regularly bathe our dog. Um, and one time, I was I was bathing Mushi. And sure enough, he's there in the bathtub. And I didn't have any of the dog shampoo. Okay? I thought, like, well, this will work. And I grabbed just a bottle of the shampoo that maybe one of my girls used or something like that. And I squirted it all over Mushi and just, you know, lathered him all up and all that kind of stuff. Well, in the process, Mushi got, got shampooed deep into his eyes, okay? Now, I probably wasn't the most loving pet owner at that moment, but, but it didn't go well for his eyes, and he really was in a rough shape. So after a day or so, we saw, okay, this isn't going away. We need to get him to the doctor. So we took him to the veterinarian, and, and they gave him these little drops that we're supposed to put in his eyes. Well, let me tell you, Mushi didn't like those drops. I mean, they, they were not something he looked forward to. I would try to put him in his eyes, and he'd be trying to bite me, you know, he'd just fighting me, didn't want those things in his eyes, so, we, so this is what we would do, we'd, we'd lay out a blanket or a towel, and we'd lay Mushi down and hold his arms down, and roll him up like a giant burrito, okay, so then he can't move, right, and we'd hold him in our, in our arms, and we'd put those drops into his eyes. Mushi looked at me like he hated my guts, I mean, he just hated me for what I was doing to him. How dare you do this to me? Now, here's the reality. I was his owner. I was the one in the house that loved him most. Yes, children of mine, I did too. I paid for him. I cared for him. I'm the one that fed him. I'm the one that got him in the morning and let him out. You didn't. You all slept in. I'm talking to my kids right now, okay? I paid the price to buy him. I bought his food. I bought the medicine. I'm the one that cared for him, but he would look at me like I was damaging him. He didn't trust me. There I was with, in his mind, unlimited power, unlimited wisdom, unlimited, unlimited power and strength and so forth, and he couldn't trust me. Oh, how often we're like Mushy the dog, right? say, God, why are you doing this to me? Why are you doing this to me? Why are you doing this to us? Worship is trusting God even when he doesn't do what we expect. Now, am I saying we're just dumb dogs, just mindless robots that just obey God and that's it? No, no. I want to to balance that idea with this truth. I'm gonna show you a passage. This is from another book of the Bible, but I, I do want you to understand a, a balancing truth to what we're understanding about the character of God. This is from microphone? Good. Okay. John chapter 15. Listen to what Jesus said. Now, this is the same God with an unlimited power, unlimited knowledge, unlimited wisdom, who doesn't need our advice, doesn't need our tips or tricks, doesn't need our counsel. He doesn't even really need our help. But look what he says. You are my friends if you do what I command. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Understand the great commission that we talk about here regularly. The great commission is a great invitation. God doesn't need us. God isn't looking for for our ideas about what he should do. But he invites us. He invites us. He gives us the honor of being part of what he is doing. When I read John 15, I see that he's giving us insight into what he's doing. He calls us his friends while he's doing it. And he gives us the joy of carrying the fruit over what Jesus is doing. This is who our God is. Though he doesn't need us. Though he needs nothing from us. Though he reigns above us with all knowledge and all wisdom and all power. He invites us to join him. What a wonder this is. So Romans 11, let's just wrap it up here. Verse number 36. The last last verse, honestly, this would be, this is your life verse. It truly is. Look what it says about our God. Verse number 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever amen feels like it could be the end of the book doesn't it it feels like we just say amen shut it and live my life there's more here in romans but see what see what the spirit is saying god's plan that is being accomplished that doesn't really need any help from us but invites us to it is all about him the plan of god is all about him not about us it's not about you it's not about me it's not about our country it's not about our government it's not about the president it's not no it's all about him and so the spirit of god gives us three prepositions remember prepositions from 10th grade grammar class remember that's all those things that a squirrel can do around the tree up and down and through and around remember all that it, yeah anybody remember that yeah okay so look what he says here from him there's a preposition all things are from God's. The plan is God's will. What is happening, what's being accomplished is God's will. And not only from him, but through him. He's doing it. Isn't this awesome? It's through him as well. The plan that's being accomplished is God's doing. So yeah, this week was God's doing. You say, but lo, you don't know what happened. Really? Maybe you should give that advice to God. Maybe you should call God to your side and say, God, you know, you probably didn't realize this, but in Pennsylvania, just like my dog, all of a sudden speaking to me and saying, Lowell, I don't know why you got these drops, but they're a stupid idea. They should not be in my, and unwrap me from this burrito, right? And the last preposition here, and to him, this plan is for God and his glory. To him be glory forever. Center point, I know that you want to obey God. I know you want to worship him by doing what he expects. But that's not all there is to following him. I want to challenge you to trust Him. To trust Him. To worship Him even when He doesn't do what you expected. And see yourself in all of your limitation. And know that God reigns far above us. And let His character and His nature remember who He is Remember what his word has told us to reach out metaphorically, taking his hand and pushing your chin up. Quit looking at the pebbles on the ground and see the great God of the universe who has a plan. It's being accomplished. It's beyond us, but it's all about him. Remember that. You know, a great place where we see that played out was at the cross of Christ. I mean, what what more could have gone against man's ideas of what the plan of God was than to kill his own son? So let's look there this morning as we wrap up. Pastor Billy.
1: Thank you, Pastor Lowell. And as uh, as you are aware, we will be celebrating communion this morning. And uh, there's many areas of Scripture where God is clear about our roles and responsibilities that we just heard. We're called to trust Him. We're called to trust in His plan. That He is a creator and sustainer of all that we have. It's also in Scripture that we're called to participate in what we what is called communion. From Luke 22, when Jesus was finishing his ministry, and and he brought his disciples together, and uh, he had dinner with them, and he did something very special, and he calls us to do the same. Communion is just a word; it just it just means shared or mutual participation to commune together. It doesn't save you what we're what we're be doing; it doesn't save you as no salvific value, but it's what's called an ordinance. It's 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 something that Jesus said i want you to continue to do this i want you to do this and there's a the main reason is to is to point people back to himself to point us back to him it's a call of remembrance and remembering what Jesus has done let me read to you in 1st corinthians 11 it says this is paul writing about communion what i received from the lord i also delivered to you that the lord jesus on the night that he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he he said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me in the same way he took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant of my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So what is it we are to remember about Christ? His purpose? His life? How he lived? His suffering? What he went through for us? His death? His burial? His resurrection? The finished work? Of Jesus Christ on the cross. When we partake of this together, this is what we're doing. We're remembering the the all goodness of God through his son, Jesus. We're also called to rejoice in our unity. Rejoice in our unity. It says here in 1 Corinthians 10, the couple blessing that we bless. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. See, he's calling us to unity in him, not in anything else, but to be unified in him, in him. There was division in the, in the Corinthian church when Paul was writing this. And Paul says, Christ is the unifier. So how do we here partake of communion at Centerpoint Bible Church? Well, it is the times that, we, that you are, we are in each person as an individually uh, given um, pieces of, of communion. So we peel off the top. We can all do that. Get it ready. Hope I don't spill it. So we're called to remember Christ. We're called to rejoice in the unity that comes from Christ. But before we partake of this, there's something very serious that he that Paul also says. We're called to re examine our relationship, our relationship with God, and our relationship with others. It says this in First Corinthians eleven, verses twenty-seven and twenty-eight. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. The next line says, let a person examine himself and then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. I'm going to pray in a moment. And I want you to truly examine yourself. Re-examine yourself. We do this uh, often at center point. Re-examine yourself to make sure that you are right with the Lord. If there's any unconfessed sin that you give it to the Lord right now, you give it to him so that you can be in that right relationship, that unifying relationship with Him. If there's someone that you have offended or wronged on this earth, they might be in this room, they might not. Confess that to the Lord. Confess it to the Lord, and when you have opportunity, go and make that right with that person. Being right with the Lord and right with others, so that you can rightly partake of communion together. So let me pray for us. Dear Gracious Heavenly Father, you have designed this process, this moment, for your church, your people to do. To call us back to you. To call us back to the relationship we have with you through your son, Jesus. To remember the sacrifice and the life of your son, Jesus. To remember that we are unified as one body in your name, in the name of your son, Jesus. And that we would constantly be making ourselves right, confessing our sins, trusting in you. As you are the forgiver of all sin, that you will create in us a clean heart so that we might have this relationship renewed through this act of communion. Pray, Lord, if there's anyone here that that is not right with you, that they would be right with you. They would make themselves right with you. They would confess of their sin. They would repent and they would lift their eyes to you as you want and desire us to look to you always. Thank you for these moments, and I pray all these things. You're in Jesus Christ's name, amen. Let's partake.